And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have the confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that, what, that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Well, good morning, Redemption North Mountain. Good morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Xavier. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time, I would love just to say hi to you after the service. If you'd be willing just to introduce yourself, I would love to be able to introduce myself to you and get to know you a little bit. And if you are here, you've been part of this church, you call this your church home, I just want to say thank you. Um, I got to meet with some people from our church this week, and I was just really encouraged because it feels like God's just doing work in a lot of hearts at this church. I keep on hearing one of these two things. People say, oh man, my, my heart is growing with the desire to love God. And I think that's really exemplified here at this church. So I just want to say thank you for, for that being real here. The second thing I keep on hearing are people saying, I want to see others' hearts grow in a love for God. And I want to use my gifts in any way I can to contribute to the body of the church. And once again, I just want to say thank you. I just really think that's exemplified in the people that are here, this desire to grow in love for God and a desire to serve others and to love other people around you. So I'm just encouraged to be part of this church. I'm so grateful that I get to be here with you. And I just want to pray and say thank you to God for the church that we get to be part of before we go into the Word. So let's just pray together before we dive in. So Father, thank you. Thank you for this church, this community. Thank you that you uh, reflect yourself through the local church, that there are people around Phoenix right now gathering together to worship your name. And we get to do the same here in our local congregation. I'm just really grateful that we get to be part of that, even if it's a small part. Like, it's just beautiful to see your hand here at this church working in us and through us. God, each week, would you help us just notice each other and notice each other's needs? Would you help us continue to grow in a passion for you and grow in a passion for others? We're just grateful for you and your love for us. So we thank you. We love you. Would you just use your word right now to teach us more about who you are? And would you bless this time? We love you. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. In the 2004 Olympics, the U.S. had a big disappointment when the men's basketball team received bronze in the Olympic tournament after receiving gold medals the previous three Olympics. So that all started in 1992's dream team, if you remember that. And after this big disappointment in 2004, they followed this up by also receiving bronze medals in the 2006 FIBA World Championship. So coming off of these big losses, the U.S. team had a focus on redeeming themselves in the 2008 Olympics. They stacked up their team, they got Coach K from Duke University to lead the team, and they were all focused on this one goal. We need to bring gold home as the U.S. basketball team. 
There's a couple programs on television that paint the picture of this road to redemption in 2008. One of them is on Netflix. And as they tell the story, they say there is this one shifting moment for the team. Here are all these star players not used to doing the hustling, dirty work of basketball. They're all used to shining, and now they have to humble themselves to work together as a team to have victory. Not only that, but on top of that, they had to learn different rules. They had to use a different basketball. They had to get used to how the game was played in the Olympics. So they say the shift was in 2007. This is a year before the Olympics when Coach K decided that he needed an older, more experienced, and unique player to join the team. And this is when he recruited Kobe Bryant to be on the team. They all say the story the same. When Kobe walks in, there's like a heavy weight in the room. Kobe's not the guy that's like, hi, I'm Kobe. Like he, he looks at them, no words, like nods to them and is ready to play. First scrimmage, 30 seconds in, they say he's diving on the ground for the basketball. He's getting rebounds. He's getting in people's faces. And Coach K said, we've never had a practice like this. I think this is all shown in this one story. They're in Vegas in 2007 training for the Olympics. And while they're there, they're like, man, we've been training really hard. The team says we should all go out and have some fun. So they get their suits on and they dress up as nice as they can. And they go to go out. Everyone on the team except Kobe. So they leave and they come back after this night of fun. It's like 4.30, 5.30 a.m. They walk into the lobby and as all, all the team is walking in in their suits after this night, Kobe is also in the lobby, sweating. I'm like, what are you doing right now? He's like, I'm going to the gym. Goes in, closes the door. I'm like, what's going on? This guy's really dedicated. So then the next day comes and it's not just Kobe in the morning. Now it's Kobe and LeBron and Dwayne Wade. And the next day comes, and a few more people join, and the next day comes. Only one week after Kobe starts, the entire team is on a new schedule. They're all waking up early in the morning training on Kobe's schedule. And it's just funny because he didn't come in and tell everyone what to do. Like literally Kobe's presence alone transformed the entire team. Just him being there shifted the entire trajectory of the team. And I think there's something to say about what happens in our lives when we are willing to invite Jesus to enter into the details of our life. His presence alone comes in and transforms the ins and the outs of our life. Slowly but surely, if we abide in him and follow him, he leads us to a place where we cannot help but become like him. So if last week John is warning and protecting the church from deception, this week he is encouraging the church with the joy that is transformation from knowing Jesus. Uh, my big idea today is simple. It's really broad intentionally because the details are in the text. But the big idea today is we are transformed by knowing Jesus. We are transformed by knowing Jesus. So let's look at the text and see how John actually goes into the details and specifics of this. Let's start in verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
So he starts off with this word that he keeps on using throughout this whole book, children, little children. And I feel like we keep on saying this like weekly, but John's continuing to display his position as a loving older mentor to this church and display his heart for them to know Jesus in the intimate way that he does. Like he really cares for these people. And I emphasize this because as these verses go on, it's like you can hear his voice of like love and care and desire for these people. So he goes on to describe the result of abiding. He says, abide in him and there will be a particular result. If you were here last week, we talked about how abiding is to remain in or to tether to. We used a really gross example about rats, but the picture was that if we are interconnected with Jesus, then it will lead us towards something. And John says the result of this interconnected life with Jesus is that we will grow in confidence and not shrink back when he returns. Jesus is going to return. We don't know when, but we do know when he does return that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But this moment will be experienced uniquely for different people. The best picture I get of this is uh, I teach some classes at Arizona Christian University and I know what people are going to get on their test, on test day, before I hand it out, just by walking in the room. Like, I could tell how confident people are just by walking in. I walk in, there's the girl in the back, she's getting 100%. She has a smile on her face. She's like, please hand me the test. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> then there's the guy in the front, his like, leg is like clicking on the ground. I'm like, he's really nervous. I know for a fact he just studied the stuff. Like, he's like, please hand me the test so I can get it down, the things that's in my mind. He's getting like a 75. There's like the girl in the class that has the book out. She's like trying to study right then. I'm like, please close your books. She's getting like a 70. There's like the guy in the back who's writing the answers on his hand as like, I see him. He sees me see him cheating. He's getting a zero. So... There's all these people in the class, and they all have like different levels of confidence depending on how much they know the content of the test. And there's like this moment when Jesus returns where we're all confessing that he's Lord, but it seems that there's these different like levels of confidence when he actually returns. Like for those who never give their life to Jesus, that day will not be experienced with joy, but with like deep regret. Oh, man this was legitimate? Like Jesus actually was king? For those who gave their life to Jesus, but it was only like in passive thought and in a passive way, there'll be this moment of like awareness. Oh, I really should have given him everything, not just some of my life. For those who were saved from like deep, hard, difficult sin that was conquering them and Jesus saved them from that, there's going to be this joy. Like I couldn't wait for you to come. Oh my goodness, this is the, I've been waiting for this day. For those who are like striving for goodness towards God, there's like a weight on your shoulders because you just want to prove yourself to God. There's this moment of like freedom and grace. Like Jesus is there and goes, oh man, I don't have that burden anymore. Like what I want us to know is that we actually have an ability to grow in confidence in Jesus. And it comes from abiding in him and knowing him, and remaining in him, depending on him, tethering ourselves to him. And as we do this, we actually grow in confidence for the day of his return. This makes me think of Matthew 7, 
When Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And listen to what Jesus says. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus doesn't say, go away because you didn't do enough for me. He doesn't say, go away because you're still broken. You didn't fix up enough. He doesn't say, go away because you didn't spread the word enough. But he says, depart from me because I don't know you. What it is that gives us confidence in Jesus is actually knowing him. John's talking about this last week. He's saying, I want to protect you from all these false ideas of Jesus so you know the real Jesus that revealed himself. What is it that gives us confidence but this knowing him, remaining in him? Our confidence is not in our own work, but it's actually in knowing him and his work. The closer we get to him, the more we are tethered to him, the more we grow in anticipation for his return. And the more we are free from shame in his presence, even now, and the more we just want to see him. Like I think about a wedding day, the groom is just like, oh, I can't wait to see his bride. I just wait. The bride can't wait to see their groom. There's that moment when they see each other, it's like everything else disappears for them. There's like, oh man, I've been waiting for this moment. Like the more we know Jesus, the more we actually grow in anticipation to see him in that way. Oh, I can't wait for his return. Our confidence is transformed by knowing Christ and abiding in him. So how is it that we actually do this? Like I could just be like, all right, go abide. Go know him. It's like, I, I don't know what to do now. It seems like John actually brings some clarity to this. So verse 29, it says this. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you'll know that everyone who is righteous has been born of him, or those who have perfected righteousness, or those who study righteousness, or those who know a lot about righteousness. He says, those who practice righteousness. That word practice actually means to do or to make it's like a practical word, I guess. It's, it's tangible. It's something that you actually do. And that word righteous means right or just or upright. And Jesus actually used this word a lot and sometimes negatively. So he would say things like, I came for sinners, not the righteous. But it seems that he's talking about this like self-righteousness that we build up sometimes. Sometimes we think like a certain culture is righteous or the way we dress is righteous or the way that we talk is righteous but it seems that he wants to bring clarity on a specific righteousness, the righteousness of God. So what is it to do the right thing in God's eyes? It seems that it's to follow his commandments, which is summarized in loving God and loving others. Like what did Josh say a few weeks ago? He said, are we growing in love for God? Are we growing in love for others? So what John is saying is to abide in Jesus is actually to practice this love for God and love for others. And once again, we could say, now, go be righteous. But I don't think that will cut it. Many of us do want to know God better. We want to love God more and love others more. 
but we just don't know where to start or we're just trying to get through the week. Like we have three kids at home, bills that need to be paid, the car needs fixing. Oh, I forgot to set that one appointment. Like there's just things throughout the week that we're just doing. God's going, well, practice righteousness. So how is it that we actually do this? Here's my random analogy to explain this, but uh, I really don't like AI. Like artificial intelligence really freaks me out. And this is the reason why. Um, Back in the day, before any of us were born, before any type of automatic music playing device existed, which I think the first was 1811. It was like this music box. Before then, if you wanted to play music, you needed to do the slow, hard, repeated work of practicing an instrument in order to play music. You needed to become the type of person who can play piano or the drums or the trumpet. But then throughout years and through new devices, more people can now play music without the work of becoming the type of person who plays music. Record players, cassette tapes, 8-track CDs, Walkmans, MP3 players, iPods. And now in order to play music, you simply need to have access to a device that has Spotify or Apple Music or Pandora if you still do that. And now with AI, it adds a whole new layer to this. So I, I heard a new song recently. It was a Christian song by Kanye West, but it was Rihanna singing it. And I showed Anna. I was like, this is such a good song. And then I did the typical Christian thing. Is Rihanna Christian though? And <laughs> like, so I showed her this song and then I found out afterwards, like, oh wait, this song is fake. Someone just like went on AI, just took Rihanna's voice from, some, from songs took Kanye's song, put it together, and came out this new song. And while I was thinking about that, I was like, oh man, not only can people now play music without becoming the type of person that plays music, they can make music without the continual, hard, repeated work of practice that makes you the type of person that can make music. The reason all of our musicians here at church can lead us in worship is because they did that work. Slow, hard, repeated work of practice. I use music as an example, but AI opens up this reality for writing and math and painting and designing. Like I think about high schoolers and college students that use it for homework. And where I think this reality can come into the church is that we can begin to believe that we can become righteous a person of love for God and others without the slow, hard, repeated work of practice. If we can just learn the right terminology and the right words, if we can Google up the right answers, if we can get the right theological terms, we can listen to the best sermons and the best podcasts, then we can believe, well, I'm righteous. But this is not the reality of the kingdom. The reality of the kingdom is that righteousness grows in us over time and intentional practice. A coach of mine used to always say, practice does not make perfect, but practice makes permanent. We are called to practice righteousness until it becomes something that we are. So how is this actually done? In order to practice righteousness, we are called to set up our life in such a way that we inevitably become more loving to God and to others. And I wish I could 
say something like in this sermon and say, then now go home and do this, and then it just switches for you. But like I said, I think this, this just takes a lot of time. So just so you know, my heart and Josh's heart is that if you're part of this church, that you would be able to look back years from now and look back and say, oh my goodness, I've actually become a person that looks more like Jesus because I've been part of this community. So during the last few months, Josh and I have been working intentionally to find resources and to create a formation, a discipleship path for our church. And we've settled on this plan that over the next two years, Josh and I want to lead our church through a formation path that is slow and practical and filled with practices to do in order to shape our church more into the image of Jesus. Like we're going to start this in the next couple months. And the focus is to have practices in our life that are gospel-centered and outward-focused and leading through the word and spirit and to intentionally not call us to do more but to actually call us to do less and to establish a way of life that would inevitably form us into the image of Jesus. So here is my guarantee. If you're willing to be part of our church for the next two years, I cannot guarantee that your life will be easier. I can't guarantee that your life will be filled more with business success and financial wealth. I can't guarantee that there won't be times of suffering. But I can guarantee, and I'm confident in this, that in two years, you'll be able to look back and see God shaping you into a person living out of his love and filled with love for God and others. Like our goal is that all of us would be shaped more into the image of Jesus. So in order to protect us from thinking that this is our way of proving ourselves to God through righteousness, John continues on to say some more words for us. Let's continue on with the passage and see what he says. So knowing God transforms our confidence, it transforms our practices. And let's see what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So it says the world does not know us and did not know him. So there actually should be something about us that makes us unique from the world. Is it our Bible knowledge? Is it how nice we are as people? Is it that we listen to Caleb and watch The Chosen? Like what is it about us that makes us unique from the world? I think it's our identity. Knowing God transforms our identity. Everyone is searching for a place to put their identity and make it solid. Most people kind of just create it in themselves. They mix like their work and their job, relationships and roles in life, their sexuality, religious beliefs, political party preferences, all together and comes out their unique identity. And the biggest difference is, as Christians, we do not make up our own identity. But we are given a new identity from the Father through Jesus and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. And that identity is we are children of the Father. He says we are called children of God and we are children of God now. All this is to point back to the Father's love. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us? That word what kind literally means from what country? Like he's literally like, 
from what world is this love? That the God of the universe would call you and me children. And not only that, but through Jesus, he would make a way for us to be his children. And we could be confident in this identity. I need us to know, before we abide in Jesus, before we practice righteousness, before we love God and love others, before we do anything, we have to stop and see the love that the Father has given us. He has given us a title and identity as his. When we give our lives to Jesus, we are marked as his. We have to see that everything else flows from this reality of God's love displayed in the person and work of Jesus. If this is true, this should shape the goal of Christianity. Like, can I ask that? What, what is the goal of all of this? I think about before I came here, I used to pastor high schoolers in Scottsdale. I always have these conversations with like 15, 16-year-old guys. They'd be like, I really like this girl. I think she should be my girlfriend. And I'd be like, well, what do you like about her? Is she a believer? Like, and I'd ask these questions. I'd just say, what's the goal here? Because whatever the goal is, is going to change the trajectory of this whole thing. What's the goal here? Is it like you really want to have a girlfriend? Is you want to be like cool because you have a girlfriend? Is it like, and I'd ask these questions. And then the 15-year-old would just, huh. Hmm. It's a good question. Like, well, what do you think the goal is? Huh. I don't know. Okay, well, we, let's talk about that later then. So like a couple days would go by, I would text or call, hey, have you thought about that? Like, what's the goal of like that whole thing? Like, you know, Xavier, I haven't really thought about it. Like, she's my girlfriend now, but like, <laughs> I haven't really thought about it yet. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like in the same way, we have to ask that question, what's the goal of all of this? What's the goal of Christianity? Because whatever our answer is, is going to change our trajectory of it. Is the goal that God's going to make us happy? We're going to have the happiest life ever? But what happens when tragedy hits or suffering comes? So that can't be the primary goal. Maybe the primary goal is God simply wants me to be holy. The problem is that makes the center of all of this on us. I need to be holier and holier and holier. God's desire is that, but all the people that were closest to God actually saw how unholy they were. It's like, we'll just be endlessly striving to be holier and holier. That can't be the primary goal. Is the primary goal that God wants me to be a better worker? Like the Great Commission, go spread the gospel, baptize as many people as you can. But then we're just, once again, on an endless cycle of doing more and more and more for God. Those are good things, but that can't be the primary goal. Maybe the primary goal is God wants me to be whole. Like mind, body, soul, get a really good counselor, which is a good thing. But like, let me make sure I live a really balanced life. The problem is like, what about people in different countries that don't have access to that same thing, that are Christians? Is that the primary goal? Maybe the primary goal is God wants us to understand him really well. Like we have to get our theo like theology crisp. But the problem is I know people that have really crisp theology, perfect, and they're just not loving people at all. What's the primary goal here? One person says it this way in a book called Mansions of the Heart. He says the real goal, the primary goal of all of this, where everything else comes from, 
is a love relationship with God, a restored relationship of love with God through Jesus Christ. God has no ulterior motives. He is not trying to get something out of you. He just wants you to be his son, his daughter, his friend, his coworker in love. Everything else flows from that. Our abiding in him, our practicing righteousness, our growing in confidence all flows from our identity as children of God in Jesus. Everything else flows from that. Through that, God actually takes all of this and forms us more into the image of Jesus. Let's see what he says as we close this out with the last couple of verses. It says this, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the last thing is this, knowing God transforms our being. All these things are displayed in who we become. God transforming our confidence, God transforming our practices, God transforming our identity is all embodied by us becoming more like Jesus. It says we shall be like him, and as we set all of our hope on him, we will become pure like Jesus. And what is this exemplified by? What is it that Jesus exemplified that he was here? Through these things, we can know if we are in the right direction, if we are becoming people of love. We receive the love of God and we become like Jesus and it's shown in our love for God and others. I think about how many of us have had moments like this when we wake up really early in the morning, we set up to have this special quiet time with God, we make a really good cup of coffee and get our favorite pen out, we get our Bible out and we turn to the passage that we're in. We begin reading the word and we're feeling the presence of God. And then our kid comes up and knocks over our coffee. And you're just, or like grabs your, or like writes on your, and you're just like, oh. Like in that moment when you're, if you're filled with like frustration, I can't believe I'm doing my Bible study right now. Like something's went wrong. Like you're driving to work, you're listening to a sermon and someone cuts you off. Like what is the actual result of all these things? Our growth towards Christ is not shown by how much we know or how good we are at finishing the task. I read my Bible today and I went to church this week and I, it's not shown in how much theology we could repeat. Like all these things aren't bad things. But it's displayed. Us growing towards Christ is displayed through who we are becoming. Are we becoming that people that love God and love others? It's all displayed in the things that we talked about today. Abiding in Jesus. Interconnecting our life with him. Practicing righteousness. Living in our identity as children of God. Through those, becoming a person of love, displaying who Jesus is to the world. Jesus, knowing Jesus, transforms us. Transforms our confidence and our practices and our identity. And through all of this, through placing all our hope on Jesus, he transforms our being and leads us to become people of love. 
So here's my question, just to close this. How do we start this now? Like, how can we actually go and start this today? And even if you do this, I don't think this will instantaneously transform any of us, but it's a slow, repeated work of practice. Here's one way you could do this today. Uh, about a month ago, Josh emailed us, if you're in the newsletter, and he just sent an email about a practice that he does each summer where he takes a passage of Scripture and he writes it out. It forces him to slow down, forces him to reflect on the words and to let those words lead him. So this summer, what he's doing is he's doing that with the Sermon on the Mount. I've joined him in this, and some people here have joined as well. Um, and what I would say is us as a community, if we'd be willing to do something like that, taking Jesus' words, slowly writing them out, and letting those words speak over us and lead us, imagine the type of people we would become. On our website, if you go to our website, at the very top, it just says, do you want to join this challenge? You can click that, and it will send you a little document on how you could do that well. But I challenge all of us to do that or something similar too, something that is slow and practiced and leading us towards knowing not only more about Jesus, but becoming more like him. With all that being said, let me pray for us as we go back into our time of worship and reflection on God's word. So let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your kindness and goodness to us. I pray for all of us here right now. I pray for those who need that reminder, God, that through you, Jesus, we can be confident that we are your children, Father. Would you give us confidence as sons and daughters? God, not only that, but would you lead us through that to practice righteousness, God, to abide in you, so that we can grow in more confidence in who you are and that we can have joy when you return here. And God, presently, right now, would you slowly but surely, wherever we are at in our journey with you, would you transform us to look more like you, Jesus? Would you make us become the type of people that when people are around us and experience us, they can't help but notice there's something unique about us. That unique thing is you, Lord. So we love you so much, and we're grateful for you. Amen.